Hello there. Welcome to the Herbcast, the podcast from Herbal Reality, delving into the plant-powered world of herbalism. So do you know your echinacea from your eleutherococcus, or your polyphenol from your polysaccharides? Whether you're a budding herbalist, an inquisitive health professional, or a botanical beginner, Herbcast is here to inform and inspire you on your journey to integrating herbs in our everyday lives. So settle down, turn us up, and let's start today's episode of the Herbal Reality Herbcast. Hi everyone, I'm here with Roy Upton, who is uh, an old friend of mine and uh, the founder of the American Herbal Pharmacopeia, amongst many other uh, connections in the herbal community and as a you know, founder and ex-president of the American Herbalist Guild as well. And I'm so looking forward to speaking to you today, Roy. I really am. Um, you've just shown me your most incredible collection of pharmacopoeias and um, your wonderful collection of herbal wisdom. So uh, thank you for joining. Really looking forward to our chat. My pleasure. My pleasure. Good to see you, Sebastian. Roy, this collection of books you've got, how have you, how have you collected that? For many decades, I guess. You know, it's, uh, I got inspired, actually, originally by Christopher Hobbs, who was another Santa Cruz herbalist uh, a while mm-hmm. ago. And Christopher was a bibliophile to the max. And um, he had an incredible library. And that was the first that I really got interested in books from a collection perspective. But it was never really from a collection perspective, but more from an herbal knowledge perspective. Because all of these books, even though even though the United States lost its herbal tradition like around 1936, the books were still there. And the information was still in these books. But People weren't using them. They weren't available. They weren't reprinted. At least most of them weren't reprinted up until that time, like 30, 40 years ago. Um, so I just started collecting the books to try to bring that knowledge back. And that's a trying to the, the type of information I try to integrate into the American Herbal Pharmacopeia so that we bring that knowledge back. Mm. And so the American Herbal Pharmacopeia... Um, you know, how did you get to set that up? Because it's an amazing collection of insight. We'll, we'll talk in more detail about what pharmacopoeias are about. But how did you get to set up the American Herbal Pharmacopoeia? Well, there's kind of two sides to the story. The first one is political. Um, in 1991, FDA proposed regulations that would basically have the potential to, to take herbs off the market. Uh, they basically wrote a piece of uh, regulation that said any herb that was used uh, strictly for medicinal purposes, such as quinine, digitalis, and yellow dock, shall be regulated as drugs. To get a drug approved at that time cost $231 million. And they were including yellow dock as an herb that's solely used for medicinal purposes. And like when I lived in a reservation, we used to collect yellow dock seeds and we would winnow the seeds, the ripe seeds, dry and winnow them and grind it up and mix it with like cereal grains. So we ate it as a food. Uh, the leaves, the women would sometimes wrap around meat kind of as a tenderizer. And the root, everybody knows, is used as a blood tonic for anemia for women. So I'm like, if these guys are including yellow dock as an example of an herb that's only used as a food, I mean, used as a drug, and therefore has to be regulated as a drug, therefore 
uh, FDA has to approve it before it ever comes on the market, most of the botanicals were toast, right? So I became a political activist overnight, literally changed my life. That one sentence, that one sentence literally changed my life into a political activist, whereas before I was just a goofball herbalist, still am. But um, So that was the first thing. The second thing was uh, while we were lobbying to protect access to herbs, um, to Congress and to health professionals and trying to build alliances. People on both sides of the fence, the people that were supporting herbs and people opposing, they all had one question. How do you know what you know? How do you know about the safety? How do you know about use in pregnancy? Um, and luckily I was able to address most of those concerns because I knew the literature, but it begged the question that we didn't have one repository for this information. So if you look at a single AHP herbal monograph, you pick it up, pretty much everything we know about that herb up until the time of publication is in there. Uh, all, I should say, most of the authoritative information. You know, there might be some outlying opinions where somebody says, oh, yellow dock is good for cancer or something like that, but maybe it doesn't hold authoritative water to the majority of herbalists. But um, we try to collate the authoritative herbal information into one source. Uh, the first thing we do is, when we're interested in a botanical, is to see if you have done a monograph. Because we know that we could just pick up off a one, uh, one publication off of a shelf and we have the botany, the chemistry, the pharmacognosy, the analytics, the toxicology, the interactions. We have everything in one source. And they really love that. And, um, and, and interestingly, here's the, the other a little segue for that story. The inspiration for the American Herbal Pharmacopeia came from the British Herbal Pharmacopeia. Uh, if you remember, again, back in the mid-80s or something, England was doing a similar action against herbs. And the Brits, the herbal Brits there, uh, British herbalists there, developed the British Herbal Pharmacopeia as a stopgap to say, no, there are quality control standards. There is inf credible information with both the British Herbal Pharmacopeia and the British Herbal Compendium that Peter Bradley put together. You know, wonderful, wonderful work at the time. And um, equally was effective at stopping that regulatory draconian restrictions that were coming on. So that's the history, both in England and in the United States, of, of what we're doing. I mean, it really sounds like you felt there was a and there still is a continued threat to the ability and the, the range of availability of the, you know, Materia Medica and the range of herbs we could use. There is. Over the years, um, FDA or different organizations have attempted or have, have put out feelers that uh, we don't think this botanical should be used because it has some potential adverse effects. Like black cohosh, there were reports of uh, liver toxicity with black cohosh. Um, and right away... We, we jumped on it. We worked on the development of a black cohosh monograph. And we were able to find right away that all of the adverse effects associated with black cohosh were not due to Actea racemosa or Simus fuga racemosa, which is the American black cohosh, but it was related to the Chinese black cohosh, Shangma, 
But then we also were able to see that, well, Shang Ma, even in China, is a highly adulterated herb with a different botanical called Serratula, right? So you you had these layers of adulteration that were going on, and most of this was figured out by the regulators in Canada. Well, USP was about to write an informational monograph recommending that black cohosh products have labeling on it that says, you know, may cause your liver to die, right? And we're like, no, that's not really the case. Or Scutellaria lateriflora, skullcap, American skullcap. Uh, that was, you know, lots of reports on hepatotoxicity associated with skullcap, but we were able to say, no, that's skullcap that's adulterated with tucrium. And then we were able to provide the diagnostic, the, the analytical tools by which you could differentiate black cohosh from the Chinese, American black cohosh from the Chinese, or the American skullcap from tucrium. Um, analytically, morphologically, organoleptically, chemically. Um, and once you have those tools, there's no reason, there's no inherent reason to say skullcap may cause you know, mm. kidney failure or something. Mm. Mm. So, oh, yeah, so well, there I mean, is a, there's always a continued threat and you always have to address things as they come up. And I know you've studied Ayurveda as well, and there's a saying, isn't there, that you should dig a well before you're thirsty. And uh, it sounds uh, like yeah. your pharmacopeers are, are really preparing for this challenge. You know, we do need to provide safe information to people, don't we, and safe quality herbs as well. So I, I, I love the depth that you've gone into. Maybe you could explain a little bit about, because they seem different, the American herbal pharmacopoeias, to other pharmacopoeias that I've read more recently, and they, they, they go into much more depth and breadth. Yeah, the, the reason is, so so two things. Again, taking um, taking a lead from the British Herbal Pharmacopoeia and the British Herbal Compendium, right? Those are two different things. The pharmacopoeia is the provides the quality control standards and limits of purity and stuff like that. The compendium provides the authoritative information regarding dosage, side effects, contraindications, interactions. So those two bodies of information are needed in order to have a good foundation of herbal knowledge. Most pharmacopoeias only focus, or I should say, virtually all pharmacopoeias in the world uh, focus only on the quality part. You know, what's the analytical methodology, methods of identity, purity, quality, testing. Um, but I recognized we needed both. So that's why the AHP monographs are called monographs and therapeutic compendium. And again, taking the lead from what, what you guys did or what Peter Bradley did in, in the UK. And really my hat's off to him because he's the one that did it, right? He's the one that really did all that work. Um, mm. And the I British Herbal Medical, Medical Association. They, uh, yeah. It was the British Herbal Medical Association that, that really drove that. And yeah, that was pioneering work. And it, it sort of feels like we need to translate herbalism for the modern world in a way, that there is a, there's a worldview that comes down upon herbalism in a way. And if we can present the, the facts as your monographs go into in such detail, we can allay those fears and concerns uh, or, or establish them where they may be appropriate, but you but you need to pull something together that is holistic in a way and complete in its view. Yeah, but I'll I'll also add one important caveat to that, Seb, is that um, we need that information for ourselves. I don't really care what anybody else thinks in the conventional medical world. Mm. Um, 
what I hear is that if I'm treating a patient, I know how it's going to interact with their medication mm -hmm. or that I'd be able to provide them with educated guidance on whether they should or shouldn't do something herbally versus conventionally or in conjunction with conventional medications. So I've always been of the primary thought that we need this for ourselves um, because we don't know it. Most herbalists don't know the quality control part of the, of the business and they need to. Most herbalists don't know the drug interaction part of the practice and they need to. Um, most herbalists don't really know the limits of what the herbs can and can't do because a lot of the information is based on marketing. It's like, what's the herb of the day, popular herb of the day? Echinacea for colds, really? You know, there's, if you look at the historical literature, echinacea would have never been used for colds. Mm -hmm. Flu, yes, for infections, upper respiratory infections, but it was more used for purulent infections, dog bites, snake bites, things of pus and inflammation, not this cold, mucusy, boggy, cold thing, right? Cold season stuff. So that was a marketing thing, but everybody started using echinacea for colds. Or, you know, um, ginseng gets pigeonholed as an energy sexual tonic and dong quai, the women's gynecological tonic, you know, and it's all because of marketing or, or even something like astragalus. We were taught in Chinese medicine not to use astragalus in acute conditions because it locks down the surface of the body. And so they say that if you have an, an infectious pathogen, it can lock, lock the robber into the mm. house, right? Mm. But then if you look at the, you look at the way astragalus was used by people with AIDS uh, in the 19, early 1990s, um, all these people had major infections going on, raging infections, upper respiratory infections, skin infections, and they were using astragalus like, you know, Kool-Aid. And most of the long-term survivors were using things like astragalus. And I, I got to thinking, well, why are they benefiting from it? And we have this theory in Chinese medicine that we were taught that you don't use it in acute infections. And then when I look at the actual historical literature, it said that it drained deficiency fire, meaning when you had these uh, inflammatory conditions, but the underlying root cause was deficiency, then astragalus was very specifically indicated. And, but that's not what was taught in school, and it's usually not written in the books. I had to dig that out from like the 16th century or something like that. Um, so I, I'm doing this for, for us more than I'm doing mm. it for anybody else, um, but I'm also doing it for consumers who need the information. Like I, I couldn't care less what a physician thinks about herbal medicine. I couldn't care less what an insurance carrier thinks or if FDA thinks. I really don't care. What I care about is giving information to the herbal practitioner community to do their medicine as safely and effectively as possible based on authoritative, well-developed information and consumers that if they want to learn about their condition and about whatever herb they're considering, they have a place to go because they're not going to get it from their doc 
and many times are also might not be getting it from their herbalist, truthfully. Mm-hmm. I mean, we live in the the real world in a way that has got a reductionist view of lots of medical pathologies, and we're we're sort of brought up to think of problem cure, you know, problem cure, aren't we, as as a sort of pill based solution. Um, and I, I, I love that holistic approach and the fact that you're so keen to be in service of the herbal community and to help us, you know, lift us up, really, from um, herb and myths, should we call them in a way, things that go around the, go around the community. And we need to push ourselves forwards, don't we? Because there is this incredible knowledge that it, it seems like with each compendium you bring out, um, each monograph and compendium, I mean, how many people do you work with, Roy, in terms of the expertise to bring one of these together? Approximately? Dir- directly, if you look at the inside cover of any monograph, it lists the authors and the reviewers. So in any single monograph, there'll be probably in the neighborhood of 35 um, writers and reviewers. But then in the process of actually doing it, it'll be more than a, usually more than 100 people. Uh, contributing in some way on each monograph. Uh, people that, uh, like last uh, this morning, I just got an email from a gentleman in um, in Germany who's an expert on lemon balm because we're doing a, a monograph on Melissa, and uh, he's an expert on ag- agronomy of of lemon balm. And so I've been communicating back and forth with him for the last month and a half, two months since I found him. And he's provided just tons of beautiful photographs of pick, of uh, harvesting and drying and stuff like that. Um, so we reach out. He won't he won't be listed as an author or reviewer because he's not actually reviewing it. But he's provided all these beautiful photographs, and we'll cite him there. But those are the types of people we reach out to all the time that might never even get acknowledged in the monograph, only because I, I had conversations with them or they provided a little help. So. Um, yeah, usually more than 100 people involved. Amazing. I mean, that depth and uh, of expertise, really, is what contributes to them. I mean, there's this fantastic word, pharmacogony, isn't there? And it feels like what you're doing is um, breathing fresh air into an, an art and a science that perhaps has uh, not had some of the attention that it could do. Tell us what pharmacogony is, Roy, and how you apply it. Yeah, so pharmacognosy was is a, basically is the the study of medicinal agents from natural products. The term actually was first used by a gentleman in Austria, Johann Adam Schmidt, um, in about 1835, and uh, in his lehrbuch De Pharmacognosis, that was the first use of the word pharmacognosis, which then became pharmacognosy. And um, so it's a study of medicinal agents from natural products, marine, algae, fungi, molds, medicinal plants. But the history of pharmacognosy went from being almost completely plant-based to being almost exclusively chemically based. Um, With the advent of chemistry throughout the late 1800s to the middle 1900s and later 1900s, and then with the fall of herbal medicine, basically chemistry just took over. And so the pharmacognosists, who were the pharmacists specializing in the in all aspects of the plant, they they 
were trained in botany. They were trained in chemistry. They were trained in plant identification. They were trained in commercial sources and handling where the material comes from. And once they everything shifted to chemistry, now they would just get plants to see what they could find in the plants. The we call it find and grind, right? They'd, they'd or grind and find. They'd get the plant, they'd grind it and see what they found, flavonoids, alkaloids, terpene, whatever it be. And um, they became chemistry jocks. And so I actually coined the term classical botanical pharmacognosy to try to bring back the plant part of pharmacognosy. Um, and even modern pharmacognosists uh, up until recent years we're saying once you know the chemistry, you don't need the plant anymore, right? And this is this is actually this is actually a really interesting segue of why we 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 are we are where we are today, is because in about what 1804, Certner in Germany for the first time isolated a quote unquote active constituent from a plant. The active constituent was morphine derived from the opium poppy. And so for the first time in medical history, they said, we don't have to use the, the whole plant. We can take the plant and we can just extract a piece of it. And then with synthesization that came in later with the synthesization of caffeine and alkaloids and things like that, now they said, we no longer need to use the plant at all. We can just create this stuff in a laboratory. And then at the same time, remember that Paracelsus came in with his kind of belief that we had to do away with the humoral dogma of Hippocrates and Galen. Um, we have to focus on the drug itself and these highly poisonous things like lead and cadmium and arsenic and things like that. And that it, it was no longer a physiologically based system of understanding medicine but became more of a pharmacological basis for understanding medicine. I was on a plane one time and tra traveling. I, I see this guy working on his computer and I see a, a thing of a thing of a brain. So I figure he's a medical researcher and I start chatting him up. Like, what are you doing? Oh, he says for 27 years, I've been teaching physicians about uh, diseases of the brain. And I'm like, Oh my God, you know what? I have a, I would love to know, can you explain the blood-brain barrier to me? Is it a physical barrier? Is it chemical? What is it? Seb, this gentleman had been teaching physicians for 27 years about brain pathology, and he couldn't explain to me what the blood-brain barrier was. He said, you know what? Nobody's ever asked me that before. He <laughs> says, and I, I don't know. And now he had a couple of textbooks with him and a whole crap load of files. So within about 15 minutes, he taps me on the shoulder and he says, hey, I, the blood-brain barrier is both physical and chemical, right? But the point, the point was, he said, we only care if something gets across the blood-brain barrier. We never cared what it was. And this really, the light bulb went off is that these guys only think pharmacologically. They don't think physiologically. Like, how do we repair? How do we improve the integrity of that blood-brain barrier? How do we improve these physiological processes, not just worry about if a drug gets transported to a target tissue? So mm -hmm. this is where we are today, both 
the chemist, the focus on chemistry and the focus on pharmacology, but none on physiology and are very little on physiology. And that's really where we should be looking at. How do we apply herbs in a manner that changes the physiology of the human system to meet homeostasis rather than just constant bombarding with drugs that do what the body should be doing anyways? Mm, mm. It's so diverse, isn't it, herbalism? The, the range of knowledge about energetics, um, constitutional insight, as well as the understanding of the, the chemistry. Um, how, do you, how do you see plants working, Roy? How, how do you use them? Oh, um, predominantly energetically. And, yeah. and not a lot of people, I don't know, most of your listeners probably will understand what we mean when we say energetic. But, you know, it's kind of an esoteric concept that's it's not really textbook easy to explain. Um, but when I approach an herb, uh, I, I, want, I want to know it. I want to know its constitution, its makeup, um, because that's what helps me to match, match up that herb with the person uh, that, f- that kind of fits that bill. And again, all of us who are in this world know what we mean, but it's a little bit ambiguous to try to explain it completely. Um, but one one kind of interesting evolution of pharmacognosy, um, remember that in Ayurveda, Chinese medicine, and in Western or early Western herbal traditions, the pharmacology or the medicinal action of the plants were based on the flavor, right? Taste. Taste was everything. The Chinese texts say it, the Ayurvedic texts say it. The taste is everything and you have to match. The taste, the energetic confirmation, hot, cold, medium, wavy, whatever, with the nature of the person and the nature of the pathology. And then when pharmacognosy came in and started to identify plant constituents, they actually started to uh, define plants by like the menthol type or the cinnamaldehyde type from like cinnamon, menthol from peppermint, or the camphor type, or the cannabis type, or the this type, or the that type. And that was the first attempt at creating a relationship between the taste, the quality, the characteristics, the energetic makeup of the plant with the chemistry, and then subsequently to the activity. Because you knew what menthol did, you knew what camphor did, you knew what these different bitter compounds and alkaloids did. And so there was a relationship that was made between the energetic conformation or nature of the plant, the chemistry, and then the subsequent pharmacology. And that's what we've always used as traditional practitioners. We've always had that relationship, but we haven't had a language that's up to modern times to really explain it well. Um, and then, but I'll also look at at, pharmac- at at modern pharmacology, and so I'll use things as magic bullets when I feel they're needed. Remember that, again, going back to Chinese medicine, there's the concept of treating the root and the branch. And sometimes it takes too long to treat the root and the person's going to die if you, you know, don't work fast enough, you know, bring their high blood pressure down, you know, and prevent them from having a heart attack or a stroke while you are working on lowering their cholesterol or whatever it is that you're going to do over a long term. But so you always look at root and branch. And so 
even though I always I predominantly look at the energetic conformation of a plant, I always pay attention to the pharmacology too and, and how that has to be applied. Well, I love how you you know bring that respect to tradition into your um, into the pharmacopoeia really because you you acknowledge that but also recognize there is a language that perhaps regulators or, or other, other um, scientists perhaps might use uh, differently. I um, also within your monographs, I think it's really interesting, Roy, as, you, as you've got these, um, you know, sources of, of handling, you know, where are the commercial sources and how's it grown and, and how's it processed, which I hadn't seen that before in a monograph. And I, I really like this detail you've gone into there. I was wondering, you know, with the pressure on the environment and the challenge we've got in the herbal community with sourcing and the, the threat from the climate crisis, whether there's some exploration going on within the pharmacopoeia community to include more regarding the sustainability and, and what we can do in the future. I think that, uh, I mean, the, the work that you have done with PACA or that Organic India has done in India with supply chain and other companies too. Traditional Medicinals does a lot um, with regards to sustainability of supply chain. Um, but with most other people, the conversations, in my opinion, are window dressing. They're, they're just talk. Um, at the end of the day, unfortunately, uh, cost factors too greatly into decisions. Um, but I also think that a lot of herbalists, for example, in the United States, are very environmentally conscious. I mean, I would say every herbalist is, has an environmental consciousness. But at the same time, um, they think that uh, the more we increase the popularity or the value or knowledge of herbs, uh, the greater the the impact is on natural populations and the greater the risk. And I'm like just the opposite. I'm like, no, we have to increase knowledge about the plants. We have to increase awareness about their value mm. precisely in order to save land. The biggest threat to, to supplies are lack of habitat. It's mm. not from an herbalist picking or even industry for the most part picking because if an industry like if, if a company like Coca-Cola needs an herb, they're going to put in hundreds of thousands of acres growing that. Now they might do it in a monocrop, which we might not like monocropping, but mm. they're going to preserve land and they're going to preserve plants because that's their, they want, they want to preserve their commercialism. And I think that's totally fine. And the thing is, we have to, well, how do we do that in a really sustainable way? Um, every, you know what I think, Sebastian, is um, when you eat a piece of watermelon or you eat a strawberry or you do anything like that, how many seeds are in mm. one watermelon, right? Hundreds. How many seeds on a single strawberry and you can even take the strawberry cut the top off plant it in the ground and 40 percent of them are going to come back right are going to grow and it's like do you know how much regenerative potential the earth has if we just take care of it and part an inherent part of that 
is how do we do that with plants and how do we do that in our lives by integrating plants fully into our lives more and in a conscious way. This is the future preservation of herbal medicine from a sourcing perspective. But the other part of it too is that there's there's untoward and artificial pressures that are put on specific botanicals because of its popularity. So echinacea was a good example. Echinacea purpurea was pretty much wiped out in the wild, partly because of lack of habitat, partly because of over over harvesting. Uh, American ginseng, golden seal, Chinese ginseng, almost extinct in the wild in Asia, because of, and specifically because of hundreds of years of over harvesting. But this gets to the point of part of the monographs always talks about how this should be used and maybe when other botanicals should be used instead. For example, we did a we did a monograph on OSHA. And OSHA root, Ligusticum portieri and a few other species that are considered OSHA, they grow in what are called sky islands. Beautiful term, sky islands. They're they're basically remote pockets of populations. And then you won't have any for hundreds of miles and then it'll be another pocket here and another pocket here and it's widely distributed but only in these little pockets that are environmentally appropriate for that particular species sky islands hmm. osha is used for upper respiratory infections just like a, a whole bunch of species like angelica or lovage, which is a close relationship, a close relative of, of Ligusticum porteri, and it was actually called Osha de Campo in New Mexico because it was just like Osha, but it grew in the valleys, not up in the mountains. So you can use, so we made, we made the case, one, that you shouldn't only be using one species of Ligusticum, two, that you shouldn't even be using Osha unless you really feel that you need it. Just like you shouldn't use golden seal unless you really feel that you need it. Because anything that grows in a very specific habitat and has limited distribution and limited populations has to be used in more limited ways. You can't popularize, just popularize it and put it out to the general public like golden seal was being used to mask drug testing you know, 20 years ago, you know, the P-test for, for cannabinoids or something. Yeah, it messed up the test, but it totally wiped, you know, puts a, an artificial pressure on golden seal that you don't really need. And uh, so I think that's an important part. And along with the commercial sources and handling aspects of the monograph, we try to bring that information forward and say, hey, be a little bit more uh, cautious about using this, environmentally conscious about using this plant. Well, I, I love that. And I think, you know, all pharmacopoeias of the world should be able to do that. And I think it's ironic that all licensed drugs and in the UK, you know, and in Europe, we have this traditional herbal registration. You're not allowed to make any ecological statements about the, the product in a time of the crisis we face. I, I think that hopefully will change because I think it, I think it needs to. But, you know, do you think our pursuit of quality can influence sustainability, Roy? Do you think there is a connection there? Because they seem to be discussed in different camps so often. And I uh, feel that there is a, is a connection. But, you know, do you think that we can, can drive greater sustainability 
say you want to source pharmacopoeial grade herbs and you want to make sure the, 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 the batch you're using in your, your clinic or your, your product, whatever it is, you know, meets this wide range of requirements for contaminants, for uh, marker compounds, etc. Do you think that is something that can, you know, support sustainability? Do you, you know, it, it seems like there's almost two conversations going on from a, from a regulatory as well as a, a, a clinical point of view. And just wondering if you think that can, if they could support each other and if there's any legs we've got as a community to try and drive greater quality in our clinical practice um, uh, and greater sustainability. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's any doubt of that, uh, Sebastian. You guys, PUCA, of working along those lines, and Traditional Medicinals also a company that specifically looks to meet pharmacopoeial-grade materials and also have a very strong environmental policy with regards to organics mm. and uh, sustainable wildcrafting. So mm. everything that, for example, a company like Traditional Medicinals does, a tea company in, in Northern California, they very specifically uh, have sustainability as one of their value propositions in their company. And they have pharmacopoeial grade as one of the value propositions in their mm. company. So very much so, those can go hand in hand, there's no doubt. Or even, a, uh, I'll even you know make a, the example of a company like Coca-Cola. Uh, one thing that Coca-Cola is, it's standardized. And it's standardized throughout the world. And there's different regulations that are required around the world for different food products or even different drug products. Um, but a company like Coca-Cola, they'll, they'll apply the most stringent um, policies uh, based on, uh, say, the, say the United States has the most strict regulations. Well, then they're going to apply those same um, quality requirements internationally throughout the world because they want Coca-Cola in Russia to taste the same as it tastes in America, right? So they're going to, they standardize their products. The wine industry does it to a, a greater or lesser degree. The chocolate industry, or the cacao, I should say the cacao industry does it to a great degree. They know every soil, the, the composition of every soil where every cacao bean is grown. Um, it's amazing how detailed they are uh, in knowing their supply chain. So when you get a company like that, that has the ability to use a massive amount of plant material, they need sustainability and they need to meet international quality. And they do it as a routine part of business. The herbal industry being relatively new, I should, you know, from a modern herb industry perspective, is relatively new and relatively small, right? You got Viagra is a billion dollar a year drug, right? And there's dozens of those, and, you know, not to mention vaccines now, but there's not a single billion dollar a year herb anywhere, right? That, that I know about. Uh, um, so the industry is relatively small. So you got these small companies just trying to do what they possibly can. Some are just going to the commercial market, and some are doing what Pucka did in traditional medicinals does, a herb farm, a Gaia, in which they want an intimate relationship with their supply chain. And ultimately, uh, and I teach people about this when I'm doing my GMP classes, is that we teach people that you have to have an intimate knowledge of your supply chain, your suppliers, 
and not just go buy a piece of paper to buy echinacea root. And, you know, you, you have to engage. And interestingly, I do the same thing on the, on the patient side. I tell patients, and I also tell practitioners on the, the patients, you have to have an intimate knowledge or an intimate uh, understanding of the herbs that you are taking. Uh, don't just buy them, you know, because they're bargain basement cheap. Ask family and friends, ask other practitioners, uh, you know, call the company yourself engage in knowing something about your medicine practitioners i tell the same thing a, a pharmacist doesn't have to call park davis or eli Lilly or pfizer to ask them something about their drug right that's all fully monographed fully standardized fully regulated not that it's all good mind you it's not um, but the point is the pharmacist doesn't have to do that the practitioner does the practitioner doesn't know whether or not the company has somebody who can differentiate between skullcap and tucrium or golden seal leaf and Oregon grape that also contains berberine. They have to be able to ask somebody in that QC department that who's minding the shop? Who's actually looking at this stuff? And do you have this expertise to make these points of differentiation that are really needed? Um, we have to fully, natural health patients have to fully engage in their healing process and practitioners have to fully engage in the process of vetting their, their materials, just as a company has to do when sourcing their raw material. I love that, Roy. I mean, I'm, you know, I think so much of the herbal industry, if not all of it, has grown out of the wisdom and knowledge of the herbal tradition and herbal practitioners. And yet, you know, is it right to say there's a bit of a disjoin in the quality of, um, should we say, the responsible end of the herbal industry? It seems to be super high grade, super sustainable. You know, is that also going on in practitioner circles in the range of Ayurvedic, Chinese, as well as, should we call them, you know, Western herbs? Only to a very small degree. Um, mm. On the Chinese side, um, there is there's probably much more selectivity um, mm. with regards to sustainable Chinese herbs because there's some uh, domestic growing of medicinal Chinese herbs here. Um, there's not a lot of growing of Ayurvedic herbs here. So, you know, the Ayurvedic practitioners that were trained in North America and have more of an environmental consciousness that's mm like California, New Mexico, Colorado, right? That's where all the Ayurveda is, right? It's in those sky islands, in those pockets, right? <laughs> um, so there's a high level environmental consciousness. So they'll go to a company like Banyan, you know, who will buy, you know, a large number of their herbs from Pucka. I hope that's not a secret. Um, or, you know, another company that's equally sustainable, for example, so that they think or they feel like they're playing their part. Um, but most of the Indian Ayurvedic practitioners and the Chinese, national Chinese, uh, Chinese practitioners, they're going to the commercial market, buying the patent medicines or, you know, doing their own private labeling or something. And there's very little consciousness in, inherent in their mm. sourcing. But um, there's more, more so in Chinese, in the 
North American trained Ayurvedic and Chinese practitioners just because of the different consciousness and, and where those people are being trained and who they're being trained by, like a Dr. Lad or like I said, somebody in New Mexico, you know, that's trained in Ayurveda, they're going to have an environmental consciousness that's different than somebody that's in Delhi for, for the most part. Mm. Not I mean, to disparage we, Delhi, you know. No, I mean, it's a, there, are, there are pressures in the, in the supply and value chain, aren't there? I mean, is the hope for practitioners to use more pharmac appeal grade herbs? You know, this amazing knowledge that is there, say the tincture usage in, in America, is that how lots of practitioners prescribe in the States? Is that one of yeah, the main ways? Yeah, but most practitioners prescribe a mix. But tinctures mm. were highly popularized but just because of the convenience of them. Um, but there's kind of a, there's a, a different part of the pharmac appeal grade story that might be worth mentioning. And, and remember that pharmac appeals establish minimum standards. And minimum standards were not necessarily the standard of care throughout history. So, for example, let's say golden seal naturally yields uh, 0.5% to 1.5% berberine, right? Well, a pharmac appeal monograph, including an AHP monograph, because you have to start somewhere, might establish that at the 0.5% level because that's the lowest amount that's naturally occurring in golden seal. Well, would any herbalist in their, you know, kind of consciousness believe that the lowest grade golden seal was going to provide the best results? Probably not. Um, but how do you know? You know, but that goes back to organoleptic and flavor, right? How bitter was it? You know, it was how fast did that, that echinacea angustifolia put the numb on your tongue? You know, that isobutylamide alchemide numbing on your tongue. Was it in five seconds it lit your tongue up like crazy or did it take 30 or 60 seconds of mastication to get a little bit numbing, right? We would do that traditionally and be able to assess relative quality. Well, now you do that with chemistry. So that 0.5% golden seal might be fine if you're using it has a bitter tonic, you know, in a digestive aid, but is it appropriate for when you're dealing with an upper respiratory infection, like a cytokine storm, if that was appropriate for it, or a case like astragalus. Uh, astragalus is uh, one of my perfect examples, and, and as is ginseng. Ginseng ranges from like $24 a kilo to $350,000 for a single root, right? That's the range. So I always said, any company who tells you we use the highest quality material ever, don't believe them, right? You might be the highest quality you can get, but, you know, look at the range. So if I was using astragalus for a regular digestive tonic, which is one of its primary uses, then I might buy astragalus at $24 or $32 a kilo. And, but if I am working with somebody that has cancer, as an adjunctive care, you know, agent for cancer care to reduce side effects or improve survivability, or if I'm treating somebody with, with AIDS, I'm getting the 50, 60, and $70 a kilo astragalus. I'm not getting the, the $24 a kilo astragalus. So I'm not always going to use the best quality because it's, there's an expense to it too, and you don't really need the best quality for all the cases. But you also often need 
better quality than pharmacopoeial standards set. And that's the point, is that pharmacopoeial standards are only a benchmark of minimum quality, not necessarily optimal quality. The, the, real, um, the real value in a pharmacopoeial monograph is that you have a recipe that if you get this minimum quality, it doesn't have this, you know, it lacks more than this amount of foreign matter. It's microbially clean. You test it according to this specific analytical method. And if all things, those things are in alignment, you should get the desired result, even if it's minimal quality. But we always have, as herbal practitioners, we have to remember that they are minimal quality standards, not necessarily optimal quality standards. I, you know, I love you pointing that out. And so it just feels like there's a bit of a gap to me here, Roy, that there's this analytical side to determine lots of pharmacopoeia grade, which I think herbalists as individual practitioners potentially struggle to get hold of because that isn't always freely available. And the methodology that we have, the methods we have, is our senses. And so how can you teach, or is that taught, you think, this sort of pharmacopoeia sensory analysis that people can really differentiate that? Because my feeling is that most herbs on the market are below pharmacopoeia grade. You're saying it's minimum, but in my experience of buying a lot of herbs over the years and making sure we get good, most things are below that, unfortunately, on some of the parameters, whatever you may judge. So how can herbalists access this? In sort of a clinical point of view, you're running your own clinic, you're not in the sort of big industry per se. Do you, do you think that, that sensory studies can be taught and, and are they taught? Um, we, we do it quite often. We do two or three uh, workshops on the macroscopic and organoleptic assessment of herbal ingredients. We do it two or three times a year. Um, we do these live two days, uh, usually when we do them live. And the last one we did was the first one we did via Zoom. And I mm. think we're going to do another one in October. Um, it's not as in-depth, obviously, as the two-day in-person one, but it's precisely to teach people um, how to do quality, quality and purity assessment. And I, I always say relative quality, relative purity assessment, macroscopically and organoleptically. And we bring these kind of issues to bear that um, chemistry, of, I should say flavor, is an extension of chemistry or vice versa either one they go hand in hand right the chemistry is the flavor the flavor is the chemistry mm. and the chemistry is the pharmacology therefore the flavor is the pharmacology so when we're teaching that class to um, industry people we focus on the quality aspect of the plant when I teach the class to practitioners, to like herbalists at workshops and things like that, I focus on the pharmacology and the activity of it more than the quality of it. So there's two different aspects of, mm. of looking at it. But think about it. Pick up any uh, manual on being a sommelier or you go to any green tea conference and you'll see a plethora of lectures on the organic, organoleptic assessment of green tea. Um, it's ad nauseum. 
the way that our food tasting, you know, the whole thing about organoleptics and sensory assessment is a major uh, driving force with regards to the, the development of foods. Now, they want to develop a food that's both um, satisfying to the senses, visually, texturally, flavor-wise, aromatically, and addictive, right? So that's a negative aspect of organoleptics. What we want to do is just say, is this bitter or is it not? Is it sweet? Is it pungent, salty, astringent? How strong on that scale, relatively speaking, right? I say relatively because it's all relative to what we know and what we can get. But um, so it's, I think it's very easily taught. Um, the one thing that's not taught uh, as in-depthly as it could be is that direct relationship between flavor, chemistry, and very specific pharmacological activity versus general pharmacological activity um, because none of the pharmacognosy programs are teaching botany and macroscopy mm. and microscopy. They're only doing chemistry. All the herbalists are just doing herbal stuff. The pharmacologists are just doing pharmacology. So never the twain shall meet, right? Mm. But this is why, again, if you look at the inside cover of every monograph, AHP monograph, we have botanists, chemists, herbalists, naturopaths, Chinese, Ayurvedic practitioners, pharmacologists, toxicologists, every ologist that you could think of that we want this cross-pollination of knowledge and experience so that we're not just presenting one aspect. So that's what we try to do. Roy, let us know. Let's tell everybody that's a herbalist to do that course, I think. I, I know people are taught in the colleges they go to as well, but you know, keeping fresh and up-to-date with this sensory ability to assess, assess your herbs and focus on that qualitative aspect, I think, is fantastic. You know, to me, you're sort of describing the language of nature, really, when we were touching on energetics earlier and the vitalism and this organoleptics. You know, I think that's what the tradition of herbalism has done so um, inspiringly, so deliciously, if you like, so informatively, is to describe the qualities and the textures and the, the nature of nature of which we are a part. We, you know, we, we are obviously a part of that whole. And I, I, I really you know, applaud you for, for what you're doing and I think you've made 42 monographs you've got quite a few in development you know there's always a need to raise money and get them funded and so if anyone's hearing this that is passionate about supporting the the great work of the American Herbal Pharmacopeia get in touch with Roy and Roy you know before we before we started chatting I was just reading um your your bio to refresh me and you write such a beautiful thing at the end of it on your on the herbal reality site saying that uh, your your reason for being a herbalist one of your purposes is to be defending the rights of consumers to access herbal medicines and see herbal medicine integrated into the fabric of homes and healthcare systems and i, I know, it really touched me reading that because i think that's um almost a our duty as citizens to be in service of the of the greater whole and you've articulated it so well that there is a need for consumers to access herbal medicines isn't there there is a need for self uh, care for empowered self-care and weaving that into the fabric of homes and society 
I, I love that vision. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, um, you're, you're You're doing it and you're, you're, you're helping us all, uh, you know, in, in the context of the regulatory world we live in and the realities of the, the pressures in the, in the value chain, you know, keep the, the knowledge and the safety and the confidence, I think, in, in the different regulatory areas, um, but also amongst the herbalists, I think, you know, raising, raising the tone and, and raising the bar. So but it's you. also, you know, a big part though, Sebastian, is also reducing fear. I mean, the regulators are afraid of them. The, the conventional medical practitioners are afraid interactions, toxicology, quality mm. issues. Um, consumers are afraid and people should not be afraid of plants. I'm sorry. Mm. You know, mm. besides the anomalous, you know, highly toxic mushroom that somebody might get when they forage, um, we really can't, we shouldn't be afraid of this. And, you know, after 5,000 plus years of using medicinal plants, really, you're going to worry about drinking peppermint or chamomile tea or taking hawthorn berry i'm sorry you know there's there's no justified fear or concern mm. that you should have but the fear comes from not having the knowledge of how that hawthorn might interact with the cardiovascular medication well you know whether it's the work of the american herbal pharmacopeia or the botanical safety handbook that we published with the american herbal product that the american herbal products association spearheaded and we're part of um we provide that information to reduce fear and say, this is how you can integrate this into your life or into your practice. So, you too. Well, I, I should say thank you for all the work that you've done because what you've done, well, at least with PACA, is mm -hmm. um, to create that sustainable model in a manner that um, is commercially viable. And my all my hats off to you, Sebastian, for real. You know, Thank you. Thank you. You know, we're all sort of walking in the in the footsteps of of great visionaries before us, and this amazing tradition that we're so blessed to be a part of. That actually every human is a part of the herbal tradition, and I I, I love the herbal community for helping open those doors and cleaning the windows in a way so people can see in and and access the the power of plants, the majesty of plants. And I know you're talking about reducing fear, but to me it sounds like you're. Uh, your love of nature and of, of people is is what overflows to to quench that fear. So I've I've loved our chat, Roy. I could talk to you for ages. I know you're totally stacked out with loads of responsibilities, but I've you know you bring such an interesting light on this really serious issue about how we access our plants um, safely, effectively, and in in the spirit of confidence that you're you're telling us to to enjoy them with. So. Thank you so much, and we'll um, let's share that course. And anyone listening, Roy's written an amazing set of articles on herbal reality, really going into the, the history of some of the things we've been talking about. And so do do read that. And yeah, lots of love to you, Roy. Thank you so much. You too, Sebastian. Stay well. You've been listening to the Herbcast, the podcast from Herbal Reality. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If so, perhaps you'd like to leave us a rating. That'd really help us to spread our message for herbal health. We hope you'll join us again for the next episode. And in the meantime, if you'd like a few more herbal insights from us, do have a look at herbalreality.com. Or learn more from us via Instagram, where we're at herbal.reality. And we're on Twitter and Facebook too. We'll be back with another episode of The Herbcast soon. Thanks for joining.